welcome to MindShift, where we explore how mindsets can help you live a life of passion and purpose. On this show, we'll explore how our thoughts, attitudes, and beliefs shape our outlook on life and influence our decisions. We'll talk to experts from various fields and hear from individuals who have transformed their lives by adopting new mindsets. Whether you're feeling stuck, searching for life's purpose, or simply curious about the power of the mind and how it's changing the future, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and let's dive in. Hello and welcome to MindShift. If you haven't done so already, please hit that subscribe button and follow along for some tips and tools on how to become your best self. Today, I have a just amazing guest that I'm really, really excited about this conversation. Uh, Martin O'Toole has overcame so many obstacles in his life from addiction and really kind of suffering from some, some trauma that's happened throughout, I think, every one of our lives, but especially his life and becoming really curious about why he was showing up the way it was becoming curious of, of, you know, everything from relationships to just everything that goes into addiction and really how to overcome that. And now, I mean, we're going to get way more into this in the story, but uh, he's been so sober for a number of years. He's written a book, he has his own podcast, and he's just has a passion for helping others, for sharing these tools and saying, Hey, you don't, you don't have to remain this way. And so this is going to be a really, really fun conversation to um, really help empower you guys to overcome really any obstacle in your life. So Martin, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. How's it going? It's, it's good. It's a, it's a great morning and I'm so excited for this. So I really want to start right at the, the beginning of, um, you know, the childhood trauma that really kind of led up to the addiction and really kind of being so uh, just down in that uh, addiction and really the mindset that it kind of created while you were in that addiction. Mm, yeah, it's a great place to start. I'll, I'll try to keep it relatively short because that's 47 years to cover. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a funny thing. I was talking to somebody the other day about this, about how we humans in fight, flight, or freeze, in survival mode, and, and especially if we've, if we've had to be in that mode from childhood, we normalize very strange familial environments. Um, and I... I, I didn't realize for such a long, long time that I had normalized what my what what a therapist later described as as abuse and um, uh, post traumatic stress disorder and uh, and lots of other things that that go with with having an alcoholic parent. And my um, my mum was an alcoholic. I was born in 1975 uh, into um, a, a Catholic family in the north of England. And um, there was always something very strange about my mum, uh, but it was always explained to us that she was having one of her one of her turns. Um, but you know, I've managed. I've spent a lot of time over the last few years uh, through hypnotherapy, meditation, working with psychedelics, to to revisit a lot of those situations with 
absolute clarity, you know, compared to trying to just do it with your own memory. And I've seen now how absolutely traumatized she was. And, you know, she, I would, I would often, she would sit in, in her bedroom on the bed drinking large, two large bottles of wine every night. Um, and I would sit on the outside of her room looking through the crack of the, you know, the hinges of the door, just worried about her, you know, watching her because she was uh, hissing to something or someone and, you know, having an argument quietly with something or someone. Um, having a, a really, it looked, it was quite an insidious thing to see, actually, just that on its own as she hissed and smoked and swore and shook her head and, um, you know, that obviously they talk about people being tormented by the demon of drinking with hindsight. I often wonder how literal her situation was, but perhaps that's for another podcast. Um, so yeah, I grew up in a, I grew up in a, in a, in a household where there was a lot of shouting, crashing, banging, or the opposite total negligence, um, strange scenes, um naked mum stumbling around the place sometimes in the street uh, knocking on next door neighbors houses friends coming home getting a friend might you know finding a friend at school getting them to come home and th then they would only come to my house once because there would be some madness occurring and and all the rest that goes with it so yeah that that was the that's a, a i suppose a small taster of 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 what it's like and i'm sure Lots of people listening to and watching this will be able to re relate to my to my story. There's nothing particularly special about it, sadly, because as we know, alcoholism and addiction are ravaging um, our so-called um, developed society and have been for years. So that that was it. It was it was growing up in this very bizarre environment, and as a result of that, seeking care, seeking intimacy from my from my mum uh, and not receiving it and my dad being away a lot because he was a traveling salesman and had uh, a very avoidant personality as well it must be said uh, he did he did his best though i gotta say he did his best she did her best under the circumstances for someone suffering uh, an extreme mental illness um but all of that going on i of course self-isolated and um and became my own therapist and as as anybody who's suffered mental illness will know, the the last person you want therapizing yourself is you. <laughs> you know, it's not going to go well. You do, you're definitely gonna you're gonna get some relatively poor advice, and of course, it's gonna be um it's gonna be one sided and based on on perspectives of of someone who is actually entirely emotionally uh, damaged, inept, I suppose, or yeah i mean it's damage is probably the word to use so so that's how i grew up and there was a lot of uh i was very angry very violent my two brothers were the same uh there was crime there was a lot of fighting there were the police and arrests and you know all sorts of stuff that went on a lot of injuries and uh and, and all the while I, I because i'd been in fight or flight pretty much since i was a, a small child that all of that became normal. So I normalized the entire um, carnival, which now when I look back, it is, is quite an astounding thing to, to think that we, that we actually have that capability mentally. 
Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's so interesting to me how when we grow up in a circumstance and it's just constant and we have nothing else to compare it to, then we just think that, oh, this is, this is just how life is. And um, I really like how later on your therapist uh, was like, yeah, this, this was just straight up abuse. Mm -hmm. And, and usually at least what I found is most of our addictions or just shit that we have to deal with as an adult usually stems from childhood trauma. And uh, it's so fascinating when we go back and look at it from a whole different perspective and, uh, and realize that we were just trying to fulfill the need that we never got. And, Mm -hmm. and we realize that we can completely change the story and how we show up. So I'm, I'm curious with all of this that has happened and what it was culminating to, what was the turning point for you? What was the point where you maybe felt so low or just felt this urge in you to change and really say, you know what, no more, I'm going to, I'm going to change how I've been showing up and, and just show up better in my life. Well, what did that look like? Great question. And, in, and the answer is actually quite a messy one because there was no one epiphanal moment. It was it actually, it, ha- it happened. It was drip fed. I'm going to use the word awakening and I, and I use it um conservatively uh, but i suppose my waking up to my to myself happened in uh, in th- probably three major events the first one was my mum dying in 2014 and that brought up all manner of things that i'd suppressed or repressed for years uh, and of course this is when i started to see this therapist because it was all bubbling up to the top and I ended up uh, putting my head through a window, slicing myself up with a knife. And um, then actually later on, and, I, and I, I can't really put my finger on when it was, but I was lying to my therapist about, about how I was. He, he was concerned I was, that I had a drink and drug problem. Um, I denied it. I, I didn't tell him an awful lot of the things that I was thinking, saying and doing. Uh, but then, as as I say in in my book, actually, there's there's, a, there's research to show that 91 percent of people lie to their therapists. So, <laughs> who knew I wasn't I wasn't special in that regard? Um, but I was also getting to the point I was under immense pressure from all sorts of angles, um, and I and I, ha- I was being investigated at the time by uh, Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs Service in the United Kingdom. So that's like the, US, the UK's um, IRS. Uh, and they, were try- they, were, they wanted to talk to me about money laundering, tax evasion, and fraud, none of which I was charged with, uh, incidentally. But, uh, but the whole scenario was, was immensely stressful. So with all of that going on, actually, I ended up the, 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 the second fulcrum point, if you like, was... Um, a belly full of narcotics and a, and a, and a bottle of um, gin or whiskey. Um, and uh, I, I found myself loading my shotgun and, uh, and it was a double barrel shotgun and I, I, I was cleaning it and then I, I loaded it. I'm sitting in the dark. I'm crying. I'm miserable. I'm really at this point lost in that swirling vortex of depression which I'm sure a lot of people can relate to, to the point where I, I lost control. I'd lost all control of my emotions and I couldn't see any other way out. I was so 
filled with shame and guilt for all of the things I'd done through my whole life because of course this behavior wound up creating an, an, a narcissist a narcissist with uh, with intimacy problems uh, an alcohol uh, addiction a drug addiction and a sex addiction so I I would seek intimacy through physical exchange which was essentially just just ridiculous um uh, casual sex casual sexual behavior with many 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 women um it was and it was it was just a, it was a, it was a tram smash so so at this point i was filled with so much shame and guilt and of course plenty of alcohol and drugs i just loaded the gun and i i pointed it to my face and i and i came this close to to blow my brains out and that was around 2015 actually my beagle um pushed the door open and just sat in the in the you know the light and the the break of the door open and just kind of looked up at me and i don't know to this day whether or not she was saying don't do it or what's for dinner but um or or both uh, but either way um something stopped me and uh i took the gun away i i broke it down i i unloaded it and then I, I started to do some work, but ultimately I was still an, still an addict, still an alcoholic, still very much enjoying my self-suffering, still enjoying the, the drama uh, of, of, of this whole thing. And, and fundamentally believing that all of these things made my identity. And of course, as I later learned, without that identity, who, who am I? Uh, and of course, my ego wasn't ready to have that conversation. So the third main main moment was um, a, a massively drunk uh, situation in uh, around 2018, and I, I tore the meniscus in my knee, uh, and then I had to lie to a lot of people I was working with, um, limping around, uh, having trashed a hotel room for no apparent reason. Um, and so that was it. I, I knew um, I knew that I had to do something really drastic. So I quit. I just went cold turkey. I quit drinking. Um, and then a year later, I was actually in the middle of having a, my third nervous breakdown. <laughs> um, and um, my brother reached out to me, who who with whom I had not spoken to for eight years, with whom I had not spoken. And uh, we reconnected. He was very zen very different to the person i i'd i'd known prior to this and his language his demeanor i i i was i was amazed and that, and i ended up asking him at some point what happened to you and he said have you heard of the psychedelic plant medicine ayahuasca and i hadn't uh, i mean i was a drug addict but I, my my drug of choice was was cocaine or weed to bring myself down from, you know, 24 hours of cocaine. So probably three months later, we're, we're off uh, in the Atlas Mountains in Morocco doing an ayahuasca journey for the first time. And uh, it's safe to say that ayahuasca and wachuma and then various other um, workings with psilocybin, with 5-MeO-DMT, um, all, all very um, mindfully worked with. I, I have, I hasten to add, with the right set, the right setting, and the right guides. Those working with those medicines has completely and utterly changed my universal, physiological, uh, psychological, and spiritual view of everything.
Yeah, I, uh, I, when it comes to those medicines, it's so important when I'm talking to people to do it in the right setting and having that healing mindset and the right guides during that. Because I know so many people that do these drugs and do these psychedelics and they don't get anything out of it. They're using it for the wrong mindset. It doesn't help them. Going along with that, I wanted to go just make a quick comment. One of the theories on where the word alcohol comes from is a is a, a Arabic word, al-gol, which comes out of the Quran for the spirit or demon of intoxication. And that's why alcohol has always been called spirits. Um, I think that's interesting. And there's a lot of cool like concepts and people who have died, from, you know, and had near death experiences being in bars and all the demons that are still or spirits that died addicted to it, trying to get that drink because they can't see beyond their addictions, which I think is fascinating. Um, I haven't had as much problems with uh, addiction as you have. I'm one of those people, luckily, family members, where we just don't want to do something. We don't do it. Our addiction is <laughs> completely, totally based on just, I want it. it it's not <laughs> a chemical dependence. So my biggest thing with your story, though, is the narcissism. You hear that word a lot these days, with uh, especially with women describing the way men treat them. Um, that's gotten really common, but vice versa. There's narcissistic women as well. My question is, because you today's environment gives us not a kind of this false reality of narcissism being something that's incurable. And so my question for you and for any of our listeners dealing with narcissism or their own or a loved one with it, what was your turning point of understanding your narcissistic behavior and how to change from being a narcissist to somebody who actually truly cares about people and truly wants to incorporate it? Because I deal with family members with narcissism and the hardest part is getting them out of that victim mentality and looking at what they can get from everybody instead of just being. And to me, it almost seems impossible. And so anyone else who feels that way, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Mm, thanks. That's a really good question. Yeah. And and you're right. The word is overused. And, 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 and I think many people are pigeonholed with that word now as well. And of course, there is the, the diagnosis of narcissistic personality disorder which I self-diagnosed, um, but of course was never diagnosed with it. But as I was, I was saying to somebody the, the other day in the profession, they said, will you diagnose this? Well, yeah, but you know, as well as I do that narcissists, the problem with narcissists is that narcissists don't know they're narcissists. Ergo, the majority of narcissists are not speaking to a professional <laughs> to seek um, a diagnosis in the first place. By that rationale, there is a, a huge uh, lump of humans, should we say, crashing around the planet, um, absolutely suffering from narcissistic personality disorder, and we'll never be able to see the statistics on it. What we can do, though, I think, is is without doing a quick, you know, Google um, Google search and deciding, oh God, I've got this illness. I, as you probably gathered, I I spent my and it answers your question as well. My my first experience with my therapist was was a very pragmatic one. So I would say to him, this is only going to work if you explain the science. So he would, and he would constantly explain. He would talk about synaptic pathways. He would talk about trauma, PTSD, neglect, abuse, seeking intimacy, 
um, all of these things that, that I would say in the first place, because I wanted to heal, and this is a key answer to your question, I, want, I, I got to the point where I wanted to, to heal myself. And I knew that I was causing so many other people so much harm and injury, emotional, um, that I had to do it. Um, so when he would explain these things to me, I would, I would really take note. And ultimately, what I didn't realize what he was doing at that time was he was teaching me the early stages of self-awareness and observation. Um, now, I, I'd love to be able to tell you, I, I worked it all out by that time, but I certainly didn't. I was, a, I was still an absolute nightmare for years. And, and the, you know, as you've heard with the shotgun story, the best was yet to come. Um, but what I, I, I would say that the main process after that, and this is actually after, after a year's sobriety, and after, after the ayahuasca was I, I decided to close down. They say after ayahuasca, you're not supposed to make any major life-changing decisions for three months. You might have heard this. Um, three days later, I'm in my boardroom in, in my, my successful creative agency in London with 10 people who work for me. And I'm saying, I'm sorry, guys, I'm closing it all down. What? Yeah, we're all part of the problem. I, I can't do this anymore. Actually, I'm really unhappy. I've been very unhappy for a long time. I don't know if you've noticed that I've been manic. I've been having a breakdown. I can't do this anymore. It's making me sick. So I closed it all down and I went to live in Bali, which is where I am now. And for the first year, or at least actually the first six months, uh, especially, I didn't do any work, but I did the work and I did the shadow work. And I would say the shadow work, which I'm sure we'll talk about more in a moment, was the was the really ugly, beautiful um, opening for me to sit in the searing, hot pain uh, of who I was, who I'd been, the things I'd done, you know, literally just bringing memory after memory in you know to my to my um front and center for observation and analysis but without judgment as best i could at that time because it, in reality I, I was still judging myself heavily uh, in those early days of the, of the self-realization stage but all that to say that's that shadow work that observation uh was was how i really began to see all of the things i'd done as a narcissist and then, of course, start to put these puzzle pieces back together to understand why I'd done it. Because as, as I said earlier, and as, as you well know, narcissists don't know they're narcissists. They will not admit it. It's always somebody else's fault. Um, they're very good at uh, uh, passing the blame. They're also very good at gaslighting, which was, which was, one, of, that was one of my main skills. Uh, and I don't say any of this with pride, you understand. I say this with, with humility. And I also say it with love for the previous version of me because um actually had he not been this absolute nightmare that he was and i wouldn't be the person i am now so incredibly grateful to be alive and, and now aged 47 living in service to others and and having conversations like this and writing books like the book i've just written so that i can say look you i can tell you right now everybody on this planet has the capacity to change at any time at any age 
on any given moment. And even if it takes you 62 years and you've only got five weeks left to live, because obviously the book's called How to Die Happy, so you can see the link, um, we can still make those changes. Anyway, I'm rambling. But the point is, um, once I started to really see that the common denominator in all of these dramas and disasters was me, then common sense took uh took hold and i had to i just had to start owning my bullshit (laughs) that's that's such a powerful uh way of looking at it and really the shadow work um it's something that uh, i know i talk about even with richard here and uh, it's one of the most powerful things that i've done to change and realize that uh, a lot of how i was showing up was simply because i didn't feel wanted when i was a kid and how how much that hurt, you know, and uh, relooking at it and understanding that, you know, my parents were doing the best that they had could with the tools that they had at the time and all the stressors of being all, all of that stuff. Right. But um, I, I, yeah, I just kind of wanted to dive into what that shadow work looked like for you. And was this kind of the catalyst for for what you call the uh, the anatomy of happy of really kind of finding, you know, how to be happy, how to show up happy, how to enjoy the process, even when it's tough and like really, really hard to look at some of these parts of ourselves. We're just like, man, I don't, I don't like this. I don't like showing up like this. How do I show up better? Yeah. Yeah. Another great question. And, and absolutely. Yes, you, you're right. It, it, I, I realize. So for me, self-realization, that's what I call it in, in my anatomy of happy um, process. And I, and, and I hasten to add, guys, as you know, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not pitching myself out as a, as, a, as a guru or a coach or a PhD. I'm a man on the mend. And it, and it happens to be that, uh, that I, I, I've lived the life of 10 men. Uh, I put myself and everyone else around me through some incredible trauma but as and and as a result of of having i would say almost a fearlessness but it, in on the one hand i embraced change at a heart in in a heartbeat because i was fearless but on the other hand i was embracing new things because i was usually running away from something else right and we must this is something 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 i realized uh, a few years back that I, I had to, that I had to accept, hang on a minute, you're not actually all that brave because you're running away from things and you're usually running away, having thrown a metaphorical hand grenade over your shoulder. Um, you do not want to have a painful conversation with that woman that you hurt. You do not want to have a painful conversation with the business partner who you screwed over and so on and so forth. So this was all part of that shadow work process. And I, I think I think shadow work's different for everybody. The, I, I actually, I provide a, a checklist, a, what I call the starter for 10 uh, in the book. And um, maybe I can, I'll, I'll share that with you if you want to share it in your um, online, in your, in your show description or something. But for me, the, the process was, was first realizing that I wasn't who I thought I was. And that is to say, you know, a good, nice, charming guy, successful businessman um, who had just, for whatever curious reason, had all these uh, unlucky relationships with all of these people who turned out to be assholes. Hundreds of them. They were all assholes. Who knew? Um, and so sitting sitting with that and realizing nobody actually 
the only asshole. Well, obviously, I, I, listen, people, some people along the way, of course, were very much co-responsible for these things. Of course, I, you know, I can't, um, I can't fall on a sword and say I, I did it all. But what I can say is that, um, that I was the, I was the catalyst for an awful lot of these problems. So once I knew that, then I, I, I meditated that so the, the 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 method the technique i used was actually meditation i would sit um in in the garden actually in uh, on a, a beach house in bali meditating and just using breath to scan the body and to to find painful parts of my body you know aches and pains and focus on them and this is a practice that i i've, I've done significantly more with uh, since and 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 learnt it from a, a an Indonesian teacher here actually a chap called Pak Murta Ada, uh, and it's called the um, it's called the harmonious mind. Um, that's that's the name of the, the meditation technique. But ultimately, it's you are releasing trauma through focusing on uh, on pain, embodied pain. So I did that, and through doing that work, these memories would would appear. These events would appear. And of course, the ayahuasca had already done a great job in dislodging some of that. And as you may or may not know, um, ayahuasca ayahuasca reaches deep down into your. This is for the audience. Always, I, I don't. You guys might know, but deep down into your subconscious, unconscious, past all of the walls, all of the the ramparts. Uh, you know, over the moat, which has got the sharks with the laser beams and the CCTV, all of those um, those heart closing protect protective uh, um, devices that we've had since our trauma began. It just reaches right through with a loving hand and picks picks your trauma out and it represents it to you. But it doesn't say, "Ah, here's some trauma. I'm going to traumatize you." You know, you're gonna have a six hour terrible time now. Actually, in my experience, and I've worked with ayahuasca many, many times now, um, uh, what the medicine does is present the trauma to you with an alternative perspective. That is to say, devoid of ego's veil, devoid of the ego's perspective. In my experience, actually, it would be my, it would be my perspective, the recipient of my bullshit's perspective, uh, perspective and actually anybody else who was in the environment. So the medicine was providing these wonderful universal perspectives of these events, of these traumatic events that I created. Now, in that, there was an alchemy. And the alchemy, I can't fully explain. I mean, you know, this is, we're talking about quantum physics, aren't we, really? And, and an incredible biotechnology that people still, to this day, either refuse to understand um, or are too terrified to. But what I can say is this, this, this medicine is, um, healed so much of my, um, uh, my trauma in this way by, by representing these memories and showing the impermanence of them, showing me that to cling to the memory with guilt, with shame, uh, or to repress, um, was only making me more ill. So I was able to, just let go of these of these incredibly traumatic memories and of course as as this as the saying goes you know you, you let go of something then you're making space for something else and uh and that's essentially what i did and i kept doing that work and that, and and so through that whole process i i 
I realized I'd created a process or rather I hadn't created it. You know, I didn't create anything. I stumbled across this process, which I decided ultimately having been a guy with a loaded shotgun to my face back in 2015 seconds away from, uh, from ending it all, man. And I'm so glad I didn't do that because I missed out on these incredible experiences I've had since learned how to love myself learn how to uh, how to forgive myself and of course learning how to do that for self meant it was infinitely easier for me to do it for everybody else so then suddenly through this process then i learned how to connect with people um now i'm making it sound easy but obviously it's not it's a it's a messy metamorphosis to say the least um and it took me several years and you know the reason why i wrote how to die happy was and actually, at the beginning of the book, I say, you know, there's no hack for happiness. I'm telling you now, this, I've written 354 pages. There is no hack for happiness. And anybody who tells you there is, I'm, I, I, I'd love to arm wrestle them uh, on a podcast live. Maybe we could do it on yours and have this conversation. Now, don't get me wrong. Of course, there are techniques. And, and I mentioned many, many, many practical utilities to mindfully uh, become present in an instant but that is that's just that's momentary stuff and i'm talking about everlasting happiness and so my the supposition is that you cannot find everlasting happiness without doing this work and i i i, I joke quite often um skipping shadow work is like skipping leg day at the gym and for anybody <laughs> anybody who, who knows what i'm talking about you'll get it you know it's foundational work and ultimately, if you avoid doing it, and let's face it, many people do. I mean, why would you want to sit with all of that crap that I've just talked about and, you know, work through it possibly for months, uh, maybe even years? I mean, why would you want to do that? So a lot of people skip it. But as a result of skipping it, they've still got that work to do. And they're just plastering over the cracks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's so true. Like the meditation and shadow work are so paramount in my opinion to healing and really sitting with yourself asking these deeper questions that's uh, that's actually where my healing journey started as well like i used to be obese at 340 pounds i had rosacea i was you know i was suffering my body was literally giving out and the one thing that i knew was if i started meditating and got getting my mind right every single day then everything that I did would be just a little bit easier. And what I found with shadow work is there's always another layer. And, yeah. <laughs> and it's so beautiful. I mean, it truly is. And, and even to this day, you know, there's things that I've um, transformed the energy and completely uh, show up differently as a result of. And then later on, there's like another layer that I just like, oh, wow, I didn't even <laughs> didn't even realize that. Where did that come from? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, and it's so beautiful, though, like if we actually look at the process and understand and I 100% agree with you that you can't be happy without doing the work, like it, mm -hmm. it just does not exist. I mean, you can pretend you can have a smile on your face, you can like show everything, you know, is great. But what's really going on inside? Like, well, how vulnerable are you? How willing are you to show that part of you, that raw part of you? And what does that bring up? Because that's really what we're talking about, especially with sustained happiness. And, uh, and I absolutely, absolutely love that. So 
with your book, How to Die Happy, which I think is an incredible title, by the way, I think that's, uh, that's absolutely amazing. Is, is that essentially your the, al- the alchemy of the everlasting happiness is the shadow work, the meditation, sitting with yourself and, and what I call having a curiosity mindset and becoming curious of like all this stuff that's popping up and, and how we're showing up and how it's running the show? Yeah, well, what the books ended up uh, being is this is essentially uh, a combination of curated wisdom. And when I say wisdom, all manner of wisdom, I quote anybody from uh, Kurt Cobain to to Jeshua, to Buddha, to the Quran, Eckhart Tolle, Ryan Holiday. There are many, many people who, who whose wisdom is dropped in there, but primarily actually Eastern philosophies. So I, 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 I wasn't, I was an atheist before um, I, I was born into a Catholic family and I had several metaphysical experiences in my lifetime, but I, I wasn't willing to, to accept them. Um, and some rather profound ones communicating with, with dead people, you know, like, and who, who, who I didn't know, but then it was explained to me who these people were later by people who had lost these people, you know? So but I wasn't willing to accept any of that stuff at that time. And, uh, and obviously I was, I was busy dis- being distracted and, and being a self-sabotaging alcoholic. So, um, but, but my, when my worldview changed and I, I, I obviously worked with the plant medicines, but then I also discovered um, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism. And, and the, the, the deeper I dove into these, into this wisdom, it blew my mind. It blew me away. I, I had no idea that the, that, that these modalities and, and philosophies thousands of years old were actually as relevant to modern day psychology as they likely ever were. And more relevant than, shall we say, certain Western religions with their doctrine and dogma, which were, in, in my view, very much more systems of control rather than invitations to to check in to learn to love yourself and to learn how to self-regulate with the beautiful byproduct of them being able to interact with your fellow humans and your planet um, with a, a whole other higher level of consciousness so so the books ended up being a collection of curated wisdom personal stories that make it relatable and as i mentioned you're probably getting a, a, a little idea that I've, I've i've had some adventures um and and practical utilities for the art of living well that's really that's really what how, the pitch um and ultimately this is all th- these are all things that i've learned in my 47 years of life and a lot of it only in the last five years i mean i've had you know my awakening journey was was strapped to a rocket uh, for various reasons and i think not just with the with the psychedelics and where i came uh, obviously bali is a deeply spiritual island um uh incredibly energetic um powerful powerful energetic island um and and a, and a an international center for healing people gravitate from from everywhere to 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 do the work here but also i was fortunate enough to having changed my environment to just to to be able to to focus on doing the work. Uh, so, I, so I managed to sort of speed up the process, I suppose. And yeah, ultimately then the book 
outlines this the anatomy of happy, which is you know what I've ended up calling it. Which incidentally, I was inspired by uh, an incredible philosopher and, and writer called Alan Watts, who uh, with whom you might be familiar. Uh, one of my heroes. He wrote a book. I think it was called The Meaning of Happiness. Um, and he wanted it. No, it wasn't. I can't remember the name. Anyway, he wanted to call it the anatomy of happiness, but the publishers changed changed the name. And uh, so, yeah, I happened upon that and, and 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 took the moniker, the anatomy of happy. But ultimately, yes, it follows a process: self realization, unlearning, uh, self love, forgiveness, connection. If you can go around this spiral journey up the top of this hill because um, it's not linear and it's like snakes and ladders you'll go up and you'll fall down as you've already just identified there cody yeah one minute i'm i'm fine next minute oh man i've just realized there's another layer of the onion to peel so you're up and down this spiral and when you get to the top when you've done all of the really 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 big work um then the work's not over you're just at the top of the hill and as i've just explained you can fall off it so then i have this um kind of fun idea of something called the zen ven and that is uh, a daily practice that invites a balance between presence acceptance awareness and gratitude i'll say those words again because this is important presence acceptance awareness and gratitude four really big concepts to get your noggin around that's for sure um but ultimately if we can get to the stage where we, and it, whatever your daily practice is, is your daily practice. I mean, I, I throw in many, many, many utilities uh, from meditation to breath work. I talk about yoga. I talk about psychedelics. But I also talk about Eric Burns' transactional analysis tool or uh, Stephen Cartman's drama triangle. So these are modern day, relatively contemporary psych, psychological um, interaction tools that we can use to keep ourselves in check and they, but also keep others in check people around us because it's once we've done the the main work let's say we are super present but we we are, then somebody else can also obviously bring us um out of kilter so it's it's then that the work is to is to maintain that balance but i'm happy to say when you get to that level you know shit gets easier <laughs> <laughs> It really does. Um, I'm I'm always working on myself, and happiness has eluded me. I've I've dealt with trauma. I I've talked about it before, but my my journey towards looking for the happy and fighting to be happy started with a psilocybin trip, and I took it for all the wrong reasons. But it it the spirit of psilocybin uh, handed me my my ass. <laughs> yeah, you got a cosmic slap, as I like to say. <laughs> it, it, I'll just say it was it it sent me to hell. And uh, one of my favorite parts of it was when I escaped. I I was in the back of my van. Um, I had a van at the time, family car that had been given to me. My friends were driving around Halloween night, and they were blasting music. Told me. Dude, just because I thought I was dying once it hit and they were like, no, you're not dying. Shut up. And I finally just like let it happen. But it, I did go to hell <laughs> like there was no it was miserable and it was dark and it was there was demons. There was all sorts of things. But I it put me in a place where I realized that all of that hell was my own creation. Yeah. I was choosing it. And the moment I chose 
I was like, I don't, I don't want to choose darkness anymore. I want to choose light. I want to choose happiness. I want to choose to, to, to focus on the good, not the bad. That was the moment that the like reality started coming back. And I heard the beginning notes of paint it black uh-huh. by the Rolling Stones. Right. And I actually like crawled on those notes back into reality. And so every time I hear that song now, it's like, that's the first, yeah, that's the first steps of the ladder of my journey towards trying to escape my depression. I still am depressed. I still feel fight that every day, but at that time, if only I had had a gun to kill my soul because I did not want to wake up on the other side from killing myself at that time in life. Yeah, well, and yeah. that, that it was the only reason I hadn't killed myself. I was raised extremely religious. And so I was too terrified to kill myself for what was on the other side. Mm. That's what kept me. And so there's a, a scripture from my, my childhood religion where uh, one of the, prophets if you will say before his come to jesus moment he asks if he could only kill his soul so he did not have to live with the torment and that that stuck with me because that was the only thing keeping me alive was yeah if i knew i wouldn't exist the moment i pulled this trigger i i would do it or jumped off that bridge and that's what stopped me but yeah it's it's crazy and like i i was listening to what you said about dogma and stuff and what's interesting to me is people say hey we have so many problems we never had all these problems back in the day no that's not true If if you look at the eastern mythologies the reason they work is because we had all these problems the difference was was we had we didn't have science we we didn't have statistics we couldn't label them they're hidden Mm -hmm. things within our reality they existed it was an even worse time men and women could you know do whatever they wanted without any kind of consequence there wasn't as much society here so the uh, effects of narcissism on people murder whatever you could get away with <laughs> you know there's no cctv 2000 years yeah. ago <laughs> there's no dna <laughs> testing or fingerprints <laughs> yeah. well and of course there was no information technology so so the our awareness of these events was not spread worldwide but moreover of course our awareness of how we can work with this stuff was not spread worldwide so you know i mean i've I've learned about buddhism primarily thanks to information technology uh and yeah. then i've and then i found a book as a result of that so yeah man I, I it's, it's, it's it's amazing and i've i've read buddhist texts i've read all sorts of things and that was something when did you because i i was an atheist at one time as as well i was more of an agnostic atheist uh yeah. there might be something but none of none of what you guys believe is real <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Yeah. that every religion it doesn't matter if it's the bible quran it, i i don't care what you're reading they have wisdoms in there to find happiness and that was the whole point of them are they used for dogma are they used for control and power absolutely but what was their purpose it was somebody sitting down going man this kind of sucks let me see if i can help other people make it better when did you start to embrace that yeah that's a that's a good question well i there's a have you have you heard of omnism yeah, I actually was uh when I was in my 20s I was trying to write a new version of that called wrongism because I believe <laughs> that everyone is wrong so you can only be right for yourself and the reason okay. man is unhappy and causes war is because man believes himself to be right the moment man is wrong will he finally be happy and and peace will reign that was kind of the philosophy of my religion I was designing 
I could buy into your philosophy there. I mean, I, I, I don't believe that there is such a thing as right or wrong because all truths are valid. Um, and it's all about our filters, isn't it, and our conditioning. But yeah, uh, I, came I, I came across the idea of omnism and only as, in as much as I was fascinated by the idea that omnism said that all, no one, no single religion is the truth, but there is truth in all religions. And just exactly what you've just said. Um, and what is that truth? Well, you know, when you really boil boil down boil it all down, it's the truth is love. And actually, um, I'm sure, obviously we've misinterpreted many things to do with God. And I, and I, you know, I'm very hesitant to use the word because because it's been personified and this this energy, if you like, has been characterized and given a, a beard and a, and a color of skin and you know an outfit and so on and so forth. But then, of course, the Chinese would call it the Tao. Uh, and as you go through, uh, you go around the whole world, this this thing, this energy, this entity or this connected life force has many names. Um, I think for me, it was obviously working with the psychedelics. The things I saw, the things I experienced left me under no doubt whatsoever that this thing this earth school that we're attending is is definitely not the be all and end all of existence <laughs> to put it to put it really really subtly um and having had having experienced death because in reality when you when you work with psychedelics in that sort of way you are and you are kind of dead you're out of your body you are floating around other dimensions um, you are able to do things that you cannot do in this body. Um, what is what is death? It's, I suppose it's it's when our when this light force um, leaves the Earth rover, as I like to call it. That's death. It's getting out of it's getting out of a vehicle, isn't it? I think John Lennon well, said that. He said it's getting out of one car and getting into another. Into but my another. favorite my favorite thing about death, uh, I love John Lennon, and uh, I loved a lot of the Eastern mythologies brought to the U.S. and the U.K. by the Beatles. But my favorite was actually when I was reading the Tibetan Book of the Dead and studying Tibetan Buddhism. One of their mantras is, if you die before you die, then when you die, you don't. Oh, nice. Well, I read the Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, which I think was was very much... Uh, instrumental in my writing this book, How to Die Happy. In fact, I have a Tibetan mantra on my arm, which is the Guru Rinpoche mantra. That's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. One place I want to go more than anywhere else in the world is Tibet. Tibet. Well, those guys know some stuff. I, I, I'm going way off base now, but I, I on a on a very um, incredible uh, psilocybin journey, I came back having received the information that we ought not to consider Buddhism as um, a religion or as even a philosophy. It's more akin to being uh, a guide for interdimensional travelers' life on Earth. <laughs> I don't know. That is very accurate. Like, the audience is ready for that, but <laughs> when, when I read Buddhism, I was just like, I don't even understand how this is a separate religion. You can literally right. be any religion and follow Buddhist teachings because there is no God in Buddhism. The the God in Buddhism is enlightenment. You... It is your yeah. 
personal growth. That's that's not a deity that, or unless you are deifying yourself in, in, in a good, less egotistical way. I'm just saying like, you can practice Buddhism and be a Christian. You can be anything. So the fact that it's a major world religion is just mind boggling to me because I'm like, this is just common sense when you read yeah. it. Yeah. And, and, and so I, I talk about that in the book uh, in detail because I'm very keen to say, look, you know, if you're like me and you, you know, you've been plugged into the matrix for X, Y, Z years and you're, you're, you're on that hamster wheel and you, you're in this existence of consumption and distraction and materialism and, and of course, you know, look, you know, addicted to these things and, and whatever, um, moving further away from spirit, let's say, um, then you may well see Buddhism as, as a bunch of bald dudes with yellow and red robes, clanging some stuff and making some noise in some in, in a cold mountain cave. And, and what I'm what I'm su suggesting to, to everybody who reads that book, who listens to me talking to you right now is reframe your thinking honestly start checking out buddhism you don't have to you don't have to become a buddhist that's the beautiful thing about it and the, and the buddha doesn't the buddha funnily enough wouldn't care less whether or not you you just you defined yourself as a buddhist the buddha would just be really chuffed that is to say happy that you were actually asking yourself who am i you know because that's the that's the profundity of the whole thing because the Buddha was a, Gautama Buddha was an expert in suffering, uh, I would say. And, and he talked about suffering a lot. And one of the things he said was, attachment is the root of all suffering. And when I started to learn about that, I started to research um, the philosophies on suffering, dukkha, as they call in Buddhism, um, and anicca, which is impermanence. I got to say, that cracked it wide open for me. And I suppose it cracked it. It cracked open both a, it cracked open the psycho spiritual um, set of ideas because the, then I could started to understand what he was saying, what the Buddhists are saying, and it's as simple as this: we suffer because we cling, we cling to everything, we cling to. I might cling to this microphone because it's an Audio Technica and I like Audio Technica microphones, so I'd be upset when it stops working. I might cling to this bracelet this silver bracelet because it's it, it means something to me it's you know it's it's a sea rope thing i've had it for years i've had some adventures with it of course i cling to this body i cling to these eyes so when when a man blinded me uh in a in a, a heinous assault which i also write about in a book i was pretty upset about losing my eyesight so the point is we and as now, the Buddha apparently didn't say this, or some scholars say he didn't, but there's a wonderful uh, phrase that's attributed to the Buddha, and I don't care if he said it. Uh, ultimately, it's very Buddha-like, and, and that is, pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. And when I discovered that and I dove into that, I was just ecstatic because I started to see the truth in it. Yes, I cannot necessarily help an event that happens to me i can't i could i couldn't have i couldn't help what happened to me as a child as a child you know I, I didn't have any say in this traumatic environment i grew up in so i had no responsibility of the event but i sure as shit do have responsibility for my response to it now in this present moment now i understand that this is quite a difficult concept for people to get their heads around because ultimately what I'm saying, I'm talking now about presence. I'm talking about absolute oneness, um, one-pointedness in the moment. 
inner breath. What happened for me in that breath? Nothing. And that's the best way I can explain this. And I've never done this before on a podcast. So I, I hope you don't mind the theatrics, but what happened for me right then was nothing. And that is the point. In that one breath, I had nothing to worry about. I had no fear. I had no, nothing, um, nothing that was troubling me from my past, nothing that's concerning me from my future. And this is why Eckhart Tolle said that one conscious breath is a meditation. I talk about this as a lot in the book as well. When people say, you know, how do you, how do you do this work? Oh, you know, you're talking about this, all this stuff, and it sounds very intellectual. And how do you do it? You know, I, I, I want to, I want to put some of this stuff into practice. And the first thing I say is breathe. It really is as simple as that. Of course, it's not as simple as that. I fully appreciate it's hard. Meditating is hard, but then that's funny if you think about it, because it's only hard if you're trying to do something, which means you're attached to an outcome. So there we go again. I'm, an, I'm attached to an idea. I want to meditate. I want to be Zen. I want to meditate. I want to be Zen. Fuck. Why am I not meditating? Why am I not Zen? <laughs> right. You're attached to the idea, buddy. Let go. And when you're not attached to it anymore, you cease to suffer. As a result, then we then we become present. I really rattled off there, so I apologize. But uh... oh, don't don't apologize. That was absolutely amazing, <laughs> and I really love that uh, that you did the breath work. I have, uh, actually have a, a past episode where I led some people through some breath work as well, um, yeah. and I've even led my own meditation course because it's been so incredibly life changing for me. And really, when, when you're doing the breath, like you have no choice but to be present because you're consciously choosing to use more than the 10% of your lungs that you, you know, automatically use just because you're alive. And when mm. you go into yourself like that, it is so empowering. Like, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Wim Hof and the Wim Hof breathing technique, but it's, it's one of my favorites. And um, there's just one thing about especially that holotropic uh, breath work and then ice baths afterwards like you have no choice but to be present like you are no. instant you know but uh one thing about uh buddhism in particular that i thought was so powerful was um you know i know most people have heard of aa or na or you know some of these different groups but a lot of people have no idea what dharma recovery is and mm -hmm. when i found this group in saint george utah and saw this group of people that the difference is is they didn't care what your drug of choice was. They didn't care if you were an alcoholic. They just wanted to know your name. That was it. And we're here to meditate. We're here to breathe and meditate. And that group grew like a wildfire. It's actually one of the issues I have with certain groups is I don't believe that once you're an addict, you're always an addict. I don't believe once you're an alcoholic, you're always an alcoholic. And that's one thing that I really think is uh, unfortunate with AA and NA is you've been 20 years sober now, man. At what point is everything that you're doing do you not identify as an alcoholic anymore? And Dharma yeah. removes you from that. We don't care what you've done. Let's just be present and let's meditate and let's focus on right now. And mm. that is just so, so beautiful. And um it really goes along with kind of my beliefs of like quantum physics. And, and I've kind of went down that route because 
you know, I was atheist for a long time and I needed absolute proof for everything. And then the quantum physics says that, yeah, we don't really have proof for a lot. <laughs> and, uh, and it's absolutely beautiful. Um, just, just really the, the energy transfer and just how, you know, for me, what we surround ourselves with is, is what shows up. And, uh, and I think it's just so, so incredibly powerful. Um, yeah. Oh, sorry, I was uh, sorry to interrupt, but I just had a point to make about what you're saying there, uh, particularly about the quantum, but also um, identifying. I, 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 you know, there's an expression. Well, it's not even an expression. It's just a truth from my perspective. It's one of my truths, and that is that words are spells. Um, you know, they call it spelling for a reason. And we we so frequently underestimate the power of the vibration that we are uttering or even that we're thinking, right? It's just a different vibration. Um, and the point being that, and I'm not dis, I'm not disrespecting AA or, or NA or anybody uh, going through, through the program. I, I, I respect anybody's, I respect anybody who's, who's, who's actually showing up and trying to heal themselves. So, you know, big up and you got all my love, uh, where, whoever you are and wherever you are. But my dissonance with the, with, with AA and NA is, is exactly the same as yours. And that is, um, if we are continuing to identify with our addiction, I am an alcoholic, I am a drug addict, then there is there is a quantum element to this. And actually, Joe Dispenza would talk about this a, a lot more eloquently than I. Um, but ultimately, we are programming ourselves. There's, 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 an, there's an aspect of subatomic programming happening there, where if we continue to tell ourselves, I am in recovery, and of course, yeah, you're in recovery, but there's an argument to say, like you said, 20 years sober, you're recovered. You are recovered. Don't let anybody tell you anything else. Just keep telling yourself you're recovered. And actually, when you're ready, stop even using that as part of your story. Because, you know, I, I talk about being a recovered alcoholic ad man in, the, in the, the blurb on my website and the blurb in the book. Well, obviously, I am. And of course, I need, I need to explain my backstory so that you give a fuck about reading my book. But in, in, in the harshest reality possible, I would rather not identify in that way at all because I'm not that guy anymore. That's Martin version 1.0. He's not me. I'm not him. We are each other, but you understand the point. So there's, um, there's, there's a, a real interesting point there where, we, where we've got to be super mindful about, uh, about identifying with with a part of our past all that said and i'm i'm, I'm sorry it's a, a long interruption but in the book i also talk uh, in detail about hypnotherapy now i don't know if you've if you've had anything to do with this but and and something called qhht which is quantum healing hypnosis therapy now i don't know how we're going to boil this down in three minutes but i'll try it's like time travel <laughs> it's basically it's it it's we can all time travel. I'll explain very briefly. So I, I actually went to see this uh, incredible healer here, a lady called um, Kartika Alexandra. And I went to see her, in, and this was a couple, a few years back, actually, maybe four years ago. And I was just starting to write notes for my book, you know, and actually at the time it was a very, you know, the, it was a very um, grandiose, um, uh, egotistical, self-serving uh, tome. Um, but I said to her, look, I, I, I'm healed. I've done all the work. I'm healed. But I want to come and see you because I used to live in a haunted house. And on this window ledge, this 
gnarly entity used to terror, terrorize my little brother and I. And actually, it turns out later on, he was terrorizing everybody in the house. But I can't remember what it looked like. So I, I'm hoping you can hypnotize me and we can regress and I can see this thing. She's like, okay. <laughs> I, I didn't notice at the time, but her eyebrow, her eyebrow went up when I said I was healed. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> anyway, so... We get down to it. We do the hypnosis. <clears throat> I talk about this at length in the book and on the podcast. And we get back to the landing in the house. Um, and I'm looking up at the window ledge and I can't see this thing. And then you remember the story I was telling you earlier on about um, about my mum drinking in her bedroom and me being outside her room and looking through the crack in the door, watching her having, you know, being tortured by herself and arguably by um, another entity and i'm glad you picked up on the uh, the arabic definition there richard because i'm down with that um i was there i was back there and suddenly i saw five-year-old martin and and i'm obviously talking to her through the hypnosis at the same time and she's guiding me so she says she says talk to five-year-old martin what do you want to tell him so i started talking to my five-year-old self and of course i told him it wasn't his fault i told him it wasn't her fault she couldn't help herself. She was ill. She was depressed, very, very depressed. She was doing her best. And I told him that he was loved and that he was love. And I told him a bunch of other stuff. And I gave him a hug. And then he was able to, five-year-old Martin, then turned to my mum. And he told her how her behavior was making him feel. And then I think it's called transpersonal therapy. This I was able to hop into her and feel her pain and her shame and upset as she, for the first time, truly realized what her behavior was doing to this five-year-old boy, that what her neglect and insanity was, was creating. And of course she was also getting the message from 45 year old Martin, who was trying to explain that he'd, obviously suffered great mental illness for four decades as a result of this, you know? So it was an incredible, incredible experience. And I can only explain it as time travel. We finished the therapy. I broke down, obviously sobbing, finished the therapy session. And I'm telling you guys from that day on, I felt I'd, I'd healed this trauma. I'd healed it. At the core, I'd gone back in time to the five-year-old me and I'd healed this incredible rift, this incredible trauma, this, um, this feeling of neglect and, uh, and not being loved. Anyway, sorry, I totally rambled off there again, but, but I, you, just, you just got me thinking about quantum physics and, and how all of these things are connected. And one day somebody's going to be able to explain it a lot better than we are right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're, we're on the precipice of finding out so much more. And it's amazing. But I love, I love your rants. Don't ever be sorry because uh, they're, they're so important. And um, I, it's, it's just funny to me. The first person on the show that I've had that have openly talked about QHHT and experienced QHHT my my really good friend Della, she is an incredible healer, and she's a QHHT practitioner. And I've had uh, two sessions with her, and your description is perfect. It's it's like time travel. It's it's like the most vivid 
journey on psychedelics you ever had, but you're completely, you know, sober. You're just, you know, in this like kind of deep dreamlike state and talking about your experience. And I actually have both recordings on my phone still from the experience that I'll, I'll go back and listen to. But it is amazing what your subconscious knows that you, mm-hmm. you don't even know that you know. And, uh, and the wisdom that I gave myself as a result of those sessions was just completely astounding to me. It Mm -hmm. was, it was absolutely amazing. And I actually, um, you know, my grandpa was uh, one of the closest people to me and I unfortunately wasn't able to talk to him before he died. I was able to be there for him. Um, it was almost like he was, and, and he actually explained this in the QHHD to me that, um, he was dying and they thought he wasn't going to make it through the night. And, um, and they told me like, Hey, you need to get down here. We have no long, we have no idea, you know, how much longer he's going to make it. But um, it was almost as if he was waiting for me so he could at least experience my presence one last time. And, um, and sure enough, I got there and within five minutes of, he, of me getting there, like he was non-responsive, He was, um, you know, mouth open, like literally like on the verge of death, Um, couldn't move, couldn't do anything. And then I got there and I grabbed his hand and all of a sudden he like sat up, he looked at me, he was trying to talk and he couldn't. And, uh, and almost as if he was just waiting to experience me one last time in this realm. And then five minutes later, he was gone. And um, it was, it was absolutely just a beautiful experience. I mean, able to um, really connect with them again on this this different plane, this different level, whatever it is, it was just, it was so powerful. And, uh, and it really is, it's like time travel through different dimensions is, is you know, how you yeah, kind of explain and, it. And, and so few people know about these modalities, right? I mean, I know, obviously you guys talk about this all the time. So, but I, I'm, I'm always super, super keen. I'm, I'm fortunate living on the island of Bali because I'm surrounded by people who are, who are practitioners in these things. You know, you, you can do, you could do the whole rounds in a day <laughs> from, you know, Kundalini yoga to holotropic breath work to some seriously good psilocybin mushrooms. Um, you could pop off and, and, uh, and, and do a, an ice bath and the lot it's all, it's all, and sound healing. And we haven't even talked about sound healing. Wow. That's a whole other episode. Mm-hmm. I would imagine. Cody, um, why don't we live in Bali? Uh, like uh, what, what stuff? You, you guys need to move here. You are more than welcome. It's, yeah, but but the point is, you know, we take we often take this stuff for granted, don't we? But but I part part and parcel of me writing and 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 getting this book out is to say, I, it occurred to me that hardly anybody knows what we're up to here and what we're talking about, because for whatever reason, you live in the in the West, for example, uh, in perhaps a developed city, which you're subject to um, the news visually and, and audio audibly you've got on on demand streaming tv you've got tiktok and all the other bullshit on this and your pornography and your gambling and whatever you're probably drinking a few um uh ironically depressants you're smoking um you're eating processed foods you're doing all of these things that are actually lowering your awareness and your vibration and disconnecting you from uh from source and from each other and and then, and then of course you've got this medical industrial complex um uh who work together with this with the the news people and and so on and so forth to to make sure that you're buying the pharmaceuticals um instead of doing all of this whatever they call woo woo or whatever the the derogatory terminology is for this kind of work 
Um, but I'm, I'm here to, to stand proud and say to anybody who will listen, open your eyes and check out the alternative healing opportunities because you will realize uh, that what we've been told about healing, uh, a lot of what we've been told about healing and what we can and cannot do is, is an outright lie. I'm not interested in talking about why on this podcast, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in talking about um, um, th conspiracy theories, but fundamentally I have seen time and time again, um, many, many people heal from all manner of things, including terminal illnesses, including cancer, using meditation, using breath work, using sound healing, using plant medicines, um, cleaning their body, you know, just getting rid of all of those toxins uh, that we don't even realize are in our body because of the crap that we eat and all of the consumption things that I just listed. Yeah, I, so, I absolutely uh, love that you're you're talking about all this. And, and we're very much aligned because it's um, it, all of this stuff is just so incredibly powerful. And I think it's just fascinating that the the Western modalities will, you know, be, oh, well, that's just a placebo. And I'm like, as if that's not one of the most powerful tools. I'm like, if you're measuring your medicine against a double blind placebo test, then the placebo has to be a pretty powerful tool then. Right. So like, who cares if it's the placebo because there's something powerful at work here. Right. Totally. And read, and, uh, and read um, Joe Dispenza. He wrote a book called you are the placebo, you know? Yes. I, I actually read that book and then even uh, becoming supernatural by, by Joe Dispenza, huge fan. Um, and then another one with cancer and this just stuff gets me so excited, radical remission, where it's just story after story after story of people who had terminal cancer and turned it around through, you know, meditation and self-love and, and viewing things differently. And so my own meditation teacher here, Pak Murta, he, he had terminal liver cancer and he healed himself using his own meditation technique. Um, and he baffled scientists and, but they actually studied him. So, and he's got to the point now where he is widely respected by the Indonesian medical community because they can't, they are, the, the scientists are fully accepting this guy is the real deal. We, we, so we're not going to, we're not going to try and, um, uh, rubbish him or, um, you know, make out like, uh, that he's a, a fraud. He's the real deal. He can, he healed himself. He's healed thousands of other people and how he does it incidentally is and this is a conversation about subatomic particles of course we are of we are vibrations ultimately right we all we i think we know that you guys know that so we are we are a series of vibrations that is very much simplifying <laughs> the, the the concept but we're a series of vibrations and in knowing that and in and being able to do this 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 very very deep kind of meditation he can identify the different vibration in every organ of the body. So he could, so he can scan his own body and he can scan your body. He can sit with you for five minutes quietly. You don't tell him anything. You don't fill in a form either. You just sit quietly and he'll scan your body and he'll tell you where your pain is and he'll tell you why your pain is uh, and, and what he teaches you to do. And that you, I mean, I, I've done a, a silent retreat called a Tapa Brata, which is a, a week-long retreat. Nobody says anything, no reading, no writing, no technology. You meditate, you're learning this meditation technique. Uh, and the idea is eventually, if you keep doing this, you can, you can find the dissonance in your body. And that's what he did. He, he, he saw the dissonance in his kidney and he was able to focus 
Um, and he, this is why he calls it the loving kindness uh, meditation, because he focused on it with all of his loving kindness. As Joe Dispenza says, wherever you put your attention, you put your energy. Well, we, are, you know, he's he's being li he's being literal. He's talking. This is this is this is qigong. This is uh, this is prana. This 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 is tai chi. These are the exercises. We focus our energy with one pointedness at anything, and we can we can change it. Uh, anyway, that's the idea. So uh, well, <laughs> we could probably talk about that for twelve podcast episodes. So. Oh, abs absolutely! It's uh, <laughs> some qigong and even the tai chi, and you know, I I just graduated from uh, massage school last year, and my uh, teacher had been studying in Thailand for like the last 25, 30 years, and um, the the power and the energy and i love how you know eastern modalities is energy first if you go to the doctor there you know if we both have covid or whatever we're still going to come out with totally different remedies because it's everything that's going on with us from our spouse our children our job you know everything and uh and i think that's just absolutely incredible and and yeah i think we could probably have you know definitely another 12, uh, 12 to 15, <laughs> maybe 20 more podcasts on the subject. Cause there's just so much and it's so incredible. Uh, before I, uh, let, let Richard ask you the very last question and let you go for the day, where can people find you? Uh, where can they go to, to get your book and, and read your book, how to die happy. And, um, I'm super excited to read it and talk about it more. Cause, uh, I I'm really excited and you just have been such an incredible guest with so much knowledge. And so, yeah, where can people find you? Uh, well, you can find me on Instagram uh, at Martin O'Toole. Uh, you can find um, the podcast on Instagram at how to die happy underscore podcast, or you can find the book's website or the podcast website. So it's how, how to die happy book.com, how to die happy podcast.com. I think now if you Google how to die happy, I'm pretty much all over, all over the first pages of Google. Um, in terms of the book, the book is available in all, all the formats possible. So there's a, I don't want to hear actually, there's a paperback here. Um, so you can get that on Amazon. You can get that uh, in Barnes and Noble. Uh, actually, if you just go into your local store and say, I want you to get this book, then they will. That's the way it works, which is cool. Um, and there's, of course, a Kindle version and an ebook version on all the ebook platforms. But um, also, we, we, we made an audio book, which. Um, which is actually really beautiful and not because I narrated it, but I did narrate it. But my partner, Jules, in the, I peppered the book with meditations and prayers and breath work. So, you know, you'll just suddenly be interrupted with a moment. Hang on. Stop reading. Stop thinking. Stop worrying. Check in. So it's an, you know, it's an, it's an interruption to to allow people to be present in the audiobook version. Jules reads them. But I took a field recorder, uh, something called a Zoom Z8. And we were geeking out about microphones earlier on. So you might know what I'm talking about. I took this on my travels all around Indonesia. And I'm recording I, with a Zoom P4. Sorry, I didn't mean to ah, interrupt. Ah, nice. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, I told you, my friend told me what to get. So uh, anyways, continue. The show is sponsored by Audio Technica and Zoom. So um, yeah, so I, I, I went around and recorded all these beautiful sounds. So I recorded um, Dusk in the rainforest of Batukaru mountain or uh, nighttime on, on the, on the shoreline of Gili Asahan, this tiny little desert Island where all you can hear is just the sea lap in the sand and the cicadas. And I've got all of these beautiful sounds of, uh, of nature. So I, I, because Bali provided my seat of healing 
such a profound seat of healing for which I will be eternally, eternally grateful. And I'm welling up just talking to you about it now. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to put a bit of Bali's healing uh, power, her nature, into the audiobook. So when you listen to Jules reading these, these, these meditations, you will be wooed by the, the sound of the frogs or the birds or, you know, whatever it is. So, yeah, the audiobook's available in all the, all the audio, audio platforms. It's basically everywhere. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love for people to read it and, uh, and I'd love to hear from people. Uh, as they read it as well. I, I yeah, actually... absolutely, absolutely. And for anybody listening, uh, check the show notes. All those links will be in the show notes so you can more easily find it as well. Um, I also have a what I call my mastermind book club. We read a book a month and we meet every Tuesday and discuss it. So I think I'm actually going to add this to the list and have my group go through it and uh, and give you some feedback. So Gratitude. Um, so, so happy. Thank you. Richard, what's, uh, what's the last question for Martin today? Well, I wanted the last question to be what you ask. You say it so much better than me, but like what you can take it. But I do have a thought. Um, one thing that I really enjoyed about this podcast, especially with Martin, I guess you could say I'm being inspired or told <laughs> to say this. It's been on my mind for like the last 20 minutes. But in Greek mythology, there's Pandora's box. And a lot of people, especially in Hollywood, they misinterpret Pandora's box as a releasing of evil into the world. And it actually wasn't. The box contained all of the gifts given to this God that made man's man's gifts and it protected us from evil. So when she opened the box, all of those gifts flew out and went into the ether, allowing evil to be present, but she was able to shut it. And within the box, the only thing that wasn't able to escape was hope. And with your book, with what we've talked about, God's love, Buddha's love, all that love, in the basic ways, it's hope, you know? And people who get lost, like the story of your mom or whatever, they become hopeless. And as long as you have hope, you have love. And as long as you have love, you can find healing. Beautiful. So that, <laughs> thanks. Um, but what's that question that you asked, Cody? I don't have it memorized, so you, you should ask it. The whole point of our our podcast mind shift. That's what I want to know from Martin. All right. So, uh, so one of my favorite things to ask Martin is, um, your massive transformative purpose. Uh, I really like to understand what is, and, and this came from one of my superheroes, Peter Diamandis, but what's the dent you want to leave in the world, the dent you want to leave in the universe? What is the massive transformative purpose vision, if you will, that you have for humanity that you would love to, to see them kind of get or, or be a part of transforming um, the, the way the world is or the way people show up? Great question. And actually a really simple answer. <clears throat> and my hope is that my existence and contribution uh, can help other people learn how to love in a world of separation. We are so blessed to be in this place and even and i appreciate there'll be people listening to this thinking fuck you we're not blessed you know this place is this place is hell yada 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 i get it i've been there i've i've felt and thought exactly the same thing but trust me this place is amazing um and but it's it's still a realm of duality so we have this natural uh, concept of separation um and we always will, because that's part of the construct. That's part of the system. It's, it's, it's part of the game's design. But 
I happen to, I have hope uh, and faith that actually we can chip away at it. And, and actually we, we can, we can start breaking down these, these walls of separation, these things, these futile and petty things that separate us and we can, and we can learn to love, we can learn to love each other. But of course that all starts with, with breaking down all that separation within us. And that yes. is the work. And once we've done that and we can learn to love ourselves, then I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt that it's very much easier to learn to love others. Um, absolutely. So. I love that. And I think it's uh, absolutely true. Like, uh, you know, one thing that I talk about all the time on this, uh, this podcast is it's, it's your mindset and what and who you surround yourself with, what you're surrounding, your brain is a neural net. Are you reading the news? Are you constantly on Twitter or whatever, comparing yourself to like, what yeah. is it that you're feeding yourself? Are you reading? Are you surrounded by beauty? Are you surrounded by people working on themselves? Are you surrounded by a healing environment? Or is it just being bombarded by all this stuff and the mindset that it creates is either going to think that you're actually separated or you're going to be able to see all the incredible, amazing things happening all around the world right now. And there is no, like, literally it's happening so fast and there are so many incredible, amazing things that you cannot keep up with everything happening. And that's what's so cool about it. I think it's so beautiful. So I love that vision. I really, really love the the love and the oneness and that we can chip away at it, especially as we start surrounding ourselves with more and more people that are doing that. And, um, you know, like people that come on my podcast and are willing to share this type of stuff. So thank you so much, Martin. I have had such an incredible time having this conversation with you. And I actually truly hope that I can uh, have another conversation with you on here again in the future. I would love to. And I'd just like to thank you both for, for your time, attention, energy, and what you're doing, you know, because you, you, what you're doing is a, is a beautiful thing. And you're, you're part of a, a huge neural network of people now on this planet, just contributing what we can do to, to help other people help themselves. And, and it's a beautiful thing to experience. And it's a beautiful thing to, to co-create with you. So thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thank you uh that was that was amazing it was one, probably one of my favorite podcasts uh, i loved hearing your your thoughts and just the the way the conversation went <laughs> you know quantum mechanics everything that was just that <laughs> uh, just ah uh, this gets me going i love this kind of talk yeah likewise i guess the juice is flowing doesn't it well mm -hmm. i'd love to come back so let, you know let's have another conversation <laughs> like, yeah sounds absolutely amazing so thank you so much for coming on the show and i, I really truly look forward to talking to you again and uh, i'll keep in touch and maybe even give you some feedback on your book because i'm really excited to dive into that love to hear it i'll receive it i'm gonna well. get the audio book today do it awesome <laughs> thanks guys all right have, have a good day yeah